I hope that the great outdoors was a blessing to you as you got to lift your voices in praise of our God. If you come in, just uh, find a seat. There's still some extra seats in the uh, side over here, and there's some rows that you could space out from other people. No problem. Or, uh, glad you're here. Let me pray for us as we continue in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you today. Um, and even though we have some uh, hindrances, we thank you that there is no hindrance between us and your throne because of Jesus. And so we thank you for uh, the praise we've been able to offer to you. And we thank you for sending your Son and then sending your Spirit to us, to our hearts. As we pray that your Spirit would indeed speak to us now, we pray as we come to your word, that you would convict us and change us accordingly. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For anyone who is experienced in taking care of a home, you'd be familiar with the dilemma of determining when to repair something and when to replace or dispose of something. For example, some animal has recently been burrowing a hole to live under our deck. Now, obviously, the solution is not to get rid of the deck. Right? It's just to repair what is there in order so it doesn't keep happening. Or another example. One of our kids' beds, a wooden slat that holds up the mattress, broke. And so again, we don't want to replace the whole bed for one little piece of wood that broke. And so we want to repair the bed by replacing that slat or by placing a sheet of plywood underneath the mattress to strengthen the bed. But there are times that things are too broken for us to fix, such as when our dishwasher died last year. We tried to repair it, didn't work, gave up, and we bought a new one. Now, the church is sometimes likened to a building or a household in the Bible. And if we are like a house, we undoubtedly have a lot of broken parts. I wonder if God ever looks at us the way that we look at home repairs, considering what can be repaired and what needs to be replaced, what is salvageable and what needs to be scrapped. I further wonder, are we open to God opening up his toolbox today and doing some repairs on us? Are you open to, to God looking at your heart and doing some repairs, some work on you today. Because believe it or not, it just might be a matter of life or death. I don't believe I'm overstating the stakes here. I think the Bible says the same in our passage today. So let's open up our Bibles, if you would, physical or digital, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 where we will read Jesus' words to a first-century church in the city of Sardis. And though these words were recorded millennia ago, these words seem quite timely for any church in any age. 
To give you just a few relevant details about Sardis, Sardis has historically been one of the, had historically been one of the most glorious cities in Asia Minor. It was a military powerhouse that rarely lost a battle and was widely feared. It was also a wealthy city through commerce and trade. And it took pride in its impressive temples and acropolis, as well as a world-renowned necropolis, or cemetery, with burial mounds that were actually visible on the skyline from miles away. However, Sardis's best days were behind them. Their, lar- their splendor was largely in the past. Over time, the city had been rocked by unexpected warfare and earthquakes, and it was now in clear decline and decay. And as it happens, the church in Sardis's situation mirrored their city's situation. But before we see that, Jesus first introduces himself in his letter to them. Look with me in verse 1. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him, or these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now this, of course, reflects the glorious vision or revelation that Jesus gave John in chapter 1. And there we saw that the whole book was addressed from God to his people, to his churches, specifically from God the Father, him who was and who is and who is to come, and from God the Son, Christ, the the faithful witness, risen from the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth, and from the seven spirits who are before God's throne. Now, since it was from the Father, the Son, and seven spirits, scholars are pretty unanimous in believing this refers to the Holy Spirit. Seven is the symbolic number of perfection, after all, so it's, it's really just a colorful way of saying the perfect, perfect Holy Spirit. This also implies that the Spirit only does complete and perfect work, something that Sardis desperately needed. As we'll see, they were nearly dead, and they could only be revived by the Spirit who gives life. And Jesus says he has the seven spirits. He has the powerful Holy Spirit available to him to use. Chapter 1 also told us that Jesus held seven stars in his right hand. And it told us what those seven stars were. It says the angels of the seven churches. Unfortunately, we're not entirely sure who those seven angels were. Whether they were guardian angels or pastors or even the churches themselves. Ultimately, though, whatever they represent, the point is that they are under God's control, in Christ's right hand. They're God's servants being used on earth today. And for Jesus to introduce himself like this, here in chapter 3, it emphasizes his sovereignty, his control, his power over the churches. But, as with every letter, the focus is on the fact that this amazing Christ is speaking. Like these are his words to his churches. And each letter ends the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Sardis's case, 
Jesus' words were not super encouraging, to say the least. Remember, it's like he's wanting to make repairs to things that were broken. And in most cases we've seen, Jesus starts with a commendation or a compliment for the church, but not for Sardis. He gets right to his critique. Look what he says. Second half of verse 1, new paragraph, says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I believe this is what we can see and learn from Jesus' words to Sardis here, that Christ speaks to expose and correct false reputations in his church. Okay, the exalted Christ speaks to expose and correct false reputations in his church. It's almost like Christ is a doctor here doing a medical examination. So a patient's gone to the doctor for a routine checkup to see if anything is wrong. And as the doctor pokes and prods, he comes to this stunning realization that things are, are way worse than anyone ever realized. That the, the patient before him is deceased. <laughs> they're, they're dead. It's like, I, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The patient had flatlined, and now the examination becomes an autopsy. They had ignored the symptoms. They thought they were fine, but they weren't. And they didn't just trick themselves into thinking they were fine. They tricked everyone. It says, you have this reputation of being alive. You can also translate reputation as name. They had a good name. When people thought of Sardis, they thought of a lively, dynamic church. If they had a church name, it would be like Life Church of Sardis or something like that. Maybe they had hip leaders. Maybe they had smoothly operating programs, energetic services. Maybe they had huge attendance numbers, a healthy budget. From a human perspective, all was going well in Sardis. Historically, their reputation was probably valid. They had been a great church. There was a time when their reputation reflected reality. They were known as a church of full of life, but really it was only a facade. And Jesus saw right through it. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Like Chuck Swindoll puts it, Sardis was a morgue with a steeple. Or as another pastor says, they were a zombie church. A church of the living dead. Recall that Sardis was known for their massive cemetery outside the city. It turns out the church resembled that cemetery more than a living church. Grant Osborne explains some further significance this would have had in Sardis. It says, the people of Sardis had a special interest in death and immortality, and much of their religious life was nature worship, focusing on the fertility cycle and bringing life out of death. So this was a city really that was obsessed with death and, and life. And now Jesus says, the church there, while looking alive, was actually dead. The question for us is, 
What is your reputation? What is our reputation? And Jesus clearly cares about our reputation, right? So, so do people see us as good Christian people who have a, a strong walk with God? Are we known as people who have it together, who exhibit love, joy, and peace? Do people see us as trustworthy, uh, maybe as people who can lead? Do we have a reputation for doing good works, for, for making disciples, for worship? And then... The bigger question is, how much of our reputation is accurate? How much of our reputation is genuine? How much is pretense? How much is true? And how much is fake? Like, are, we, are we faking it? Maybe we were strong in our faith at one time and we got a reputation for it. But is that still true? Is our faith still alive and active? Are we still operating and living and growing in the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are we just going through motions on our own power? If you're honest with yourself, what do you think Jesus sees when he looks at you? What does Jesus see when he looks at our church? He knows the true state of our souls in our churches. We can't trick him. And amazingly, sometimes he's the only one who even notices. The book of Revelation continually tells us that things are not as they appear. That they, the Things in reality are not how they look to us. And the same goes for the life and vitality of churches and Christians. Sometimes things are not as they appear. So may the Spirit of God expose us so that he can correct us and heal us and revive us. See, while the diagnosis here was morbid, things actually weren't hopeless. In the words of Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, they were mostly dead. <laughs> There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. <laughs> Maybe not really, but you know, you'll see what I mean. Okay? As Danny Aiken describes Sardis' dire situation, says the necrosis was spreading and endangered the whole body, but the situation was not past salvaging if they would listen to the great physician's diagnosis and remedies for healing. Hope was fading and time was running out, but it was not yet beyond a cure. Christ is exactly who they need, and his prescription for a possible recovery is what they definitely must hear. Because this church is his church, there is yet hope of recovery, restoration, and revitalization. The condition is critical, but not yet terminal, not as long as he is present. And that makes sense if the one who is speaking is the one who conquered death. And the revelation has described him as the firstborn of the dead, the, the living one who was died, who, who was dead. He died and yet is alive forevermore. The one who holds the keys to death 
and Hades. What is the good news of Jesus if it is not that he takes dead people and brings them to life? We are all born spiritually dead in our sins, deserving of both physical and eternal death. But Jesus died the death we deserve so that we can receive the life that only he deserves. Like Ephesians 2 declares, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what he has done for every one of us who are in Christ today. This is what he can do for you if you are not, but you want Christ to give you life. And this is what he wanted for Sardis. He wanted to revive them. If God has awakened you to your need for him, we want to help you find that life in him, in Jesus. So, so please come speak with us or reach out to us. We would love nothing more than to help you meet Jesus. You need his life. Back in Revelation 3, Jesus readily gives the church in Sardis his remedy for their condition. Look at verse 2. It says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, very quickly, Jesus was speaking to the church as a whole here, not individual Christians. So this was not saying that believers had insufficient works for salvation or anything like that. Okay, This was saying the church's works were lacking in what God wanted of them. And since works are the proof of our faith, you could suppose that the faith was evidently waning in Sardis. They had grown comfortable in a mediocre, convenient faith. They weren't living up to being a true church of Christ. They're deficient, insufficient, incomplete. In the eyes of others, they may have measured up, but not in God's sight. So they needed to wake up, literally become watchful. And Jesus had a habit, if you think in the Bible, of saying, wake up to dead things. I remember how he told Jairus' daughter to wake up. Or how he, he said a very dead Lazarus was only sleeping. Death is only sleep to the one who holds the power over death. And here, Jesus is calling a dead church out of its grave. Wake up! Open your eyes! Clue in! This is a, a divine alarm clock going off. Beep, 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 beep. Like, don't hit the snooze. <laughs> and then once we wake up, we've got to get to work. It says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about 
to die. So in Sardis, there evidently were some living aspects to their church. There were things remaining, right? good things about them. However, even those things were in rough shape. It says they're about to die. So Jesus tells them to, to strengthen what is weak and dying, to tend to their disease, to, to repair what was broken, to shore up their shortcomings. Notice that he didn't want to merely expose their false reputations. He wants to correct their actions so that their good reputations would be true again. So he graciously calls them to return to life and spiritual vitality. One question you might have here is, how? How do we wake up and Strengthen what remains. How can we as a church make sure that our works are complete in God's sight? We know on one level we will never be perfectly complete until heaven. But on another, like Jesus seems to say they really could do this. And he's clearly telling the church to, to wake up to what's going on with them. To get a good picture of where they stand, good and bad. And then to take action, to get to work on strengthening wherever they're weak. And I think that verse 3 is actually going to answer the question of what Sardis was supposed to do. But we might also wonder first, like, well, what might we be lacking here at Calvary? And I don't have divine inspiration here. Just my pastoral observations. But I trust God's Spirit can expose to us where we need to grow as a church. Of course, there are personal weaknesses in each one of us which affect the whole body. We are one body made up of many members. So when one is suffering, we all suffer. And so we, ha- we need to be addressing the, any dying faith in ourselves or to help each other wake up spiritually. But as far as our church at large goes, I'll give you three really brief observations. And of course, there's probably more. I could be wrong here, but these are my observations. I would suggest that we are generally quite weak at evangelism. And we have a hard time keeping an outward focus to reach out to the lost. It's very much easier to look inward. I think we're, and the second one, I think that we are growing in compassion and in caring for those in need, but that we still have a long, to, a long way to go. Like it's something that needs strengthening. And I believe that we have been weak in prayer. Though I think God's been doing some really good work on us here lately, especially in this scene. It's like he's driving us to prayer. <laughs> so strengthening what remains for us could be waking up to these things and taking intentional steps to address them, to trust God, to revive them in us. Here's what God told Sardis to do in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So they had to remember, says, what they received and heard. Most likely talking about how they had heard the gospel, the good news, and how they had received the Holy Spirit. 
And they had to remind themselves over and over again what Jesus had done for them. And they had to remind themselves that the, the one, the power that raised Jesus from the dead was still at work in them right then. Once they remembered this, it would reveal just how deficient their current situation was. And therefore, they needed to keep it, it says, to keep what they've received and heard, to obey it, and then to repent, turning from their sinful ways and back to God. So in other words, their spiritual lethargy and lack of watchfulness was in fact sin. They needed to repent of it. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we don't need to repent of these things today. So, if you find yourself in a place of, of spiritual deadness today, take this to heart. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And may our whole church be found faithful in that ongoing repentance as the Spirit exposes it in us. At the end of verse 3, Jesus warned Sardis of what would happen if they kept on sleeping. Look, at it says, If you will not wake up, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now those words echo several other passages in Scripture which all describe Jesus returning to earth like a thief in the night. In other words, he'll come unexpectedly, without notice, and people won't necessarily be pleased to see him. <laughs> but in this case, Jesus likely wasn't talking about his coming return to earth. He was warning of a surprise visit to Sardis to judge them specifically. If they were to wake up, He'd sneak into their house while they slumbered and rob them. Like the message paraphrases, if you pull the covers back over your head and sleep on, oblivious to God, I'll return when you least expect it. Break into your life like a thief in the night. Now this warning would have especially sounded an alarm in Sardis for their city as a whole had actually failed to remain watchful back in the day, and it cost them dearly. See, Sardis was built on a mountain, like a fortress, with 500-meter precipices on three sides, and a steep approach on the fourth, the only accessible way into the city. So in its long history, the city of Sardis was never taken by direct military assault, not once. But... There were two fascinating incidents which, which, when they became too comfortable, too at ease in their security. One time, Sardis had become so powerful that their ruler, Croesus, dared to attack the empire of Persia. But Persia, under Cyrus, retaliated and put Sardis under siege. Croesus set a guard for the city, expecting to be able to outlast the siege, but they only guarded the one side of the city that they thought they needed to guard. And one of Cyrus's men, one of the Persian men, climbed up a crevice that they called an, an unscalable cliff. And he snuck into the city and opened the gates for Persia's army. And Sardis fell. They, it shocked the world. 
Capturing Sardis actually became a saying for achieving the impossible. <laughs> and you think they would learn from this. But almost the exact same thing happened again. About 300 years later, the Greek ruler Antiochus captured the city by sending a small band of men climbing a cliff face at an unwatched spot who then opened the gates from the inside. And the city fell. And now Jesus is warning his church. If you fall asleep at your post, you'll meet the same fate. Daryl Johnson concludes, the history of Sardis teaches us that we are never more in danger of falling than when feeling comfortable and at ease. So I urge you and I urge all of us today, wake up. Wake up. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. In verse 4, Jesus' tone changes from confrontational to comforting. And while he didn't start with a commendation, he does give one now. Look at it with me. Verse 4. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, isn't that really encouraging? Now, even in a dying church full of apathy, Christ still has a few people that he calls his own. And he gives them quite the compliment to have him call them Worthy. What set them apart? What made them different? Look again. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I think we can learn something very valuable here. I put it this way. That Christ speaks to commend countercultural holiness within his church. Yet the exalted Christ speaks to, to commend this countercultural holiness within his church. So, evidently, the majority of the church had failed where a remnant minority had not. Most of the church in Sardis had soiled their garments, so to speak. In other words, they had compromised with the world, corrupted their lives, they had contaminated their Christian witness by blending into the culture, and thus their clothes were dirty, stained, un unclean, ruined. You can picture the, the shame that people feel if they have a noticeable accident in their pants. Right? Jesus is implying that's what happens to you when you wallow in the world's muck. However, the focus here is on those who had not done so. Right? So yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Not every believer had been compromised. There were some who remained true. To put it another way, there were some who still pursued holiness. They've been given 
clean, purified garments through the gospel of Christ, and they weren't about to contaminate what they'd been given. And Jesus was proud of them. They were vigilant in staying pure, even when that meant being countercultural, going against the flow in the church. <laughs> like they were noticeably different even from their fellow church members. I wonder which description best fits what we look like today. And I'm not going to assume one way or the other about you personally. But may the Holy Spirit convict or encourage each one of us respectively. Have we soiled our garments? Have, are, are we walking how we ought to walk today? Are we watching or listening to or saying or doing unholy things? Or are we awake and alert to the dangers all around us, constantly keeping watch? Are we willing to be culturally ignorant in order to be eternally wise? Are we willing to take a stand and be different even if no one else does? Not even those around you in the church. Danny Aiken encourages us, says, Taking this stand most certainly would be costly in the days to come. However, it will be gloriously worth it in the new age that is coming. They will walk in the purity of white clothing provided by Christ, symbolic of their justification and holiness of life. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now that's a picture of walking with Christ on parade, in triumphant procession. As opposed to the soiled garments of others, believers like this will be decked in pure white will be visibly uncontaminated and set apart for the Lord forever. Now, it's not like you can earn holiness from God or achieve perfect holiness for yourself. But if you've been saved by Jesus, you have his holiness guaranteed for you one day. And in the meantime, we're still called to live lives worthy of that calling, worthy of the gospel, living lives of holiness and godliness, scripture says, taking off our old clothes and putting on new ones. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Sin since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. <laughs> I encourage you to take some time to seriously consider what this might mean for your life today. What it looks like to pursue holiness now. Because believe me, holy living now will prove well, well worth it in the end. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are 
worthy. As Jesus begins concluding this letter here, as he does in all of them, he does so with a challenge, which doubles as an astonishing promise of blessing for his people. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Like to the conquerors or victors or overcomers. In other words, to those who wake up and strengthen what remains. Or those who remember and keep his word and repent. Those who keep their blood-bought garments free from corruption. Jesus makes this promise and much more. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Here's what I believe we can take to heart here. All right? Christ speaks to challenge his church with the promise of everlasting holiness and honor. He challenges his church with this promise of everlasting holiness holiness and honor. Essentially, Jesus will give them everything they could have wanted from the world's approval, and yet infinitely better versions of them. Sardis loved being known as a good and moral and faithful church, but that wasn't true holiness. Looks can be deceiving. On the other hand, Jesus promises them that they're going to be clothed in white garments. That's true holiness. And then marched through the streets in this glorious parade of holiness. These white clothes represent victory and purity and glory and celebration. Something that they could ultimately only receive from Jesus. And don't miss the fact that it says that we will be clothed by Jesus He'll dress us, since we can never dress ourselves in this way. Uh, so Sardis' reputation looked impressive on earth. They had a good name. This is what they were getting from the world around them, but they wouldn't be able to maintain that reputation forever. Like we said, it was a facade, and ultimately it would fall apart sooner or later as their church slowly died. It's no coincidence then. The second and third rewards Jesus gives in verse 5 have to do with their names. Their names. Look at it. First, it says, I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. They would have true life, and they'd have it forever. They would have a reputation of being alive, and they'd be alive. And this was something they could never lose over time. He says, I'll never blot their name out. They have this everlastingly secure reputation and good name. But it would also be an eternally honored name. Do you see that? It says, also, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now this sounds a lot like Jesus' words in Matthew 10 where he says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Have you ever had your name called out for an honor of some kind? Maybe at a graduation and your name gets called out, you get a 
march across the stage, shake a hand, strike a pose, and step down. Or maybe you, you won some kind of contest or competition, you get recognized for that. Now think of the honor that we feel at those moments. And, and how long, which lasts for what? Five seconds? A minute? Maybe an hour? And then imagine hearing Jesus himself call out your name in front of God the Father with all countless angels are applauding and the whole universe is watching. Can you even imagine? And the honor that you feel then going to last forever? This is what's going to happen one day to all who stay true to Jesus in this dark world. This was a promise that has special meaning for the church in Sardis, of course. But these are rewards that, that Scripture describes. God, God promises these, these things to all true believers of Christ, all true followers of Christ. So don't be ashamed of Jesus. Like even if it gets you some dishonor now, or even if the world offers to, to preserve your reputation or your popularity or your name, like whatever you can gain now pales into oblivion compared to what Jesus offers us forever. And don't keep sleeping. If you feel like your faith is slumbering, even dying. Wake up! May we strengthen what remains in our hearts and in our church before it dies. By God's grace and by the Spirit's power, may we prove worthy of the call that we have in Christ. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You hear him speaking today? He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you truly revive us again today? Wherever we have fallen short, wherever we are stumbling, wherever we are sleeping, Give us the power we need to strengthen what remains. Lord, if we have been rebuked and corrected, may we truly repent and turn from these things and turn back to you. Lord, anything, wherever anyone here has heard you speak, may we not resist, may we not ignore you, May we not resist you, but would you change us? 
We pray because we need your help for this, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.